Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Martyrs and Missionaries is a production of Revive Studios. You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and every episode I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're talking about Scottish Olympian and missionary Eric Little. I am excited to cover Eric Little. Many of you have asked me to cover him, and now it's time. So I'm not going to cover much of the sports Olympics elements of his life because we're looking at him from a different angle, but also because I'm completely ignorant of sporting events and terminologies. So I figured I would save any track or rugby fans the effort of so many facepalm moments. So Eric was born in 1902 in Tianjin, China, in northern China, to Scottish missionary parents. When he was six years old, he and his older brother Robert left China for a boarding school in London specifically for the sons of missionary parents. Boarding school was such a normal thing in the not-so-distant past. It would be very traumatic for me as a parent to give up my kids for so long, but it was just kind of what you did, so I guess you were used to it, or it was so much the norm that like there was no sympathy, I guess, for it. So if you were struggling, maybe other parents would kind of be like, oh, that's just the way it is. Winston Churchill, I believe it was, said that he had a far better relationship with his wet nurse than with his own mother. Eric and his brother only saw their parents two or three times while they were on furlough in Edinburgh. Early on in his schooling, Eric showed a proclivity towards sports, sports of all kinds actually, but predominantly rugby, cricket, and track. He became the youngest captain of both the rugby and cricket teams when he was only 15 years old. Despite all the fame and acclaim, his headmaster described Eric as being entirely without vanity. In 1920, he joined his brother at the University of Edinburgh and studied science and research methodologies, which is not exactly a field you would imagine a future famous Olympian would go into. He was great at rugby, but he was known far more for his running talents. He quickly became known as the fastest runner in Scotland. During his time at the University of Edinburgh, he was chosen to speak at the Glasgow Students' Evangelistic Union. They hoped he would draw large crowds to hear the gospel. And I couldn't find any follow-up on this, so I'm going to assume that it wasn't really an overwhelming success. The most well-known part of Eric's life revolves around his success in the 1924 Paris Olympics. He was a skilled 100-meter runner but knew the finals were on Sundays, and so he refused to run on the Sabbath. And this angered a lot of people. He received a ton of flack for it, but he didn't really care. Instead, he focused on the 400-meter races, which were held during the weekday. And he wasn't very good at the 400-meter. He finished at 49 seconds routinely, which was pretty average. It wasn't really all that good, but still he trained. And on the day of the race, he received a note which read, He that honors me, I will honor. Wishing you the best of success always. And it encouraged him that after all the flack that he had, someone still believed in him and admired his commitment to honor God. 
He ended up winning the 400 meter handedly, bringing home the gold for Scotland. And I want to throw this in here because it's just a little bit amusing, just how much like point seconds matter in sports, especially like, you know, speed based sports, because the 49 seconds was pretty meh, right? But he won at like 47 point something seconds. So that two seconds took him from pretty mediocre to taking home the gold in the Olympics. I just thought that's kind of kind of interesting little tidbit there. After he graduated, instead of riding off into the sunsets of sports fame, he returned to North China in 1925 to work as a missionary teacher. I'm not going to cover the political landscape of China during this time because we've covered it in many other episodes, especially Gladys Aylward and the John and Betty Stant episodes. But suffice to say, they were in a civil war and the Japanese were invading at the same time, and it was really a rough time for China. Eric worked as a science teacher at a school in Tianjin for wealthy Chinese students, and his idea was that if you educate the wealthy, they grow up to be an influential part in China and in turn promote and spread Christianity and Christian values. And it actually worked. China lost many Christians to the war and to the cultural revolution that never would have had the chance to even hear the gospel had it not been for the work of those early missionaries on the ground sowing those seeds. Eric taught the boys a variety of sports and even competed sporadically in events throughout the years. And because of his birth and death in China, many Chinese consider him to be the first Chinese Olympian. He only took two furloughs. The first one was to become ordained with the Congregational Union of Scotland. I feel like a lot of these missionaries we cover on the show are Congregationalists, like 200 years worth on and off of like all of your famous missionaries being Congregationalists. When he came back from his first furlough, he married Florence McKenzie in 1934. They had three daughters, the youngest of whom he would not live to see. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. He was once asked if he ever regretted leaving behind fame and glory, and he replied, It's natural for a chap to think over all that sometimes, but I'm glad I'm at the work I'm engaged in now. A fellow's life counts for far more of this than any other. In 1941, he moved to a more war-torn and impoverished part of North China that was caught up in the Civil War and the Japanese invasion. His wife and kids returned to Canada to wait out the war. The rural mission station where Eric worked was short on help and run by exhausted, tapped-out missionaries. He came to relieve his brother Robert, who was sick and needed to go back to Scotland for medical care. As the fighting intensified, the Japanese took over the mission station and Eric was forced back to Tianjin. Then in 1943, he and about 2,000 others were rounded up and forced to go to the Weifong internment camp, almost 300 miles to the south. Weifong was the largest internment camp in China. It was a former American Presbyterian mission campus. And as far as internment camps go, it could have, it could have been a lot worse. In contrast, a camp in Indonesia housed over 130,000 allies. Many of them were Dutch, and about 14,000 of them died. 
and the rest lived in horribly brutal conditions. There have been speculations about why this was, and the most common prevailing theory was because of the colonizing past of the Dutch, the Japanese were making them pay for it. But Weifang wasn't that way at all. It was run by civilian Japanese, not the military, and that alone made a huge difference. The prisoners were used as political bargaining chips and exchanged between the Japanese and the Allies throughout the war. Life at the camp was described as almost normal but for the oppressive sense of precariousness and the unknown. The prisoners were self-governed with committees and councils that then reported to the Japanese commandants. But even so, it was still an internment camp, so the resources were sparse and overcrowding was a huge problem. Lice, bedbugs, and malnourishment still plagued them daily. Eric was appointed by the labor committee to be both the teacher and also the organizer for youth sports. He taught science classes, and according to one of the inmates there, some of the students Eric taught went on to make notable scientific achievements based on the foundations that he had taught them. He took a fatherly interest in the kids in the camp. He was separated from his own children, and many of the children hadn't seen their parents in years, and many of them probably didn't even have parents anymore. Another inmate in the camp described Eric as being everywhere at all times, teaching Sunday school and Bible classes, consoling the troubled, visiting the sick, and even fixing broken equipment. He was known throughout the camp as Uncle Eric. Everyone knew him and everyone loved him. One of his roommates and a dear friend said that Eric unreservedly committed his life to Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. That friendship meant everything to him. Then in early 1945, and maybe even as late as 1944, he began experiencing what was thought to be a nervous breakdown due to overwork. Instead, it turned out that he had a brain tumor. And while he was in the hospital, surely knowing that he was dying, he requested the Salvation Army Band to play his favorite hymn, Be Still My Soul, outside his room. It was February in North China, but through the bitter cold, chapped lips and fingers, the band played. Be still my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change he faithful will remain. Be still my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend. Through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. He died shortly thereafter at the age of 43, and the church could not contain the people who overflowed his funeral to pay their respects. A mere five months later, the 1,400 prisoners were liberated. Many of the internees carrying the impact of his friendship and devotion to God into their post-war lives. One of his friends remarked, It is rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but Eric came as close to it as anyone I ever met. We often hear about the chariots of fire part of Eric's life. His life in China had far more impact and was of more consequence than his sports record. He laid down all that to run the ultimate race, a life well lived for Christ and for the gospel. And if you aren't familiar with the hymn, Be Still My Soul, get familiar with it. It's a beautiful hymn. I may link it in the description if I find a good version for you. I also wanted to say thank you to those of you who, after hearing our announcement last week, reached out to support us with prayer and also financially. We are beyond grateful to you guys. We are preparing to move here in about two weeks or so. It's coming up really, really fast. If you enjoyed this episode, you know what to do. Share it around and tell everyone you know about the best show on your podcast app. As always, thanks for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise. 
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.